It's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill and streaming online at WERU.org. Democracy Forum with your host, Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters is up next. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This is the fourth program in our series this year to broadcast at this time on the third Friday of each month. We're featuring topics in Maine's participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Our conversation today is Citizens Initiatives, the Devils in the Details. We'll explore the historical origins of the initiative provisions in Maine's Constitution, how initiatives actually work in Maine, our contemporary experience with them, their effect on politics and elections, and the tensions between direct and representative democracy. We'll talk about proposals for reform, many of which are being debated in the Maine State Legislature right now. We'll be taking your calls during the second half of the show, so stand by to join the conversation. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host for the Democracy Forum today. Let me introduce our guests. Joining us from, I think you're in Berkeley, California by phone is Joshua Dick. Josh is the Associate Professor of Political Science and Co-Director of the Center for Public Opinion at the University of Massachusetts Lowell. Welcome, Josh. Uh, It's great to be with you, Anne. So glad you could join us. Joining us in the studio is Michael Franz. Mike is a professor of government and legal studies at Bowdoin College and co-director of the Wesleyan Media Project. Thanks for coming to the studio today, Mike. My pleasure. The Constitution of Maine provides citizens the right to enact or reject law by petition. Fewer, few controversies in Maine right now in Maine state governments have raged as hot over the last few years as the ones arising from and pertaining to citizens' initiatives and people's vetoes, from bear baiting to ranked choice voting. Some of these medical marijuana, legal marijuana, have been um, controversial. And the Maine state legislature is right now debating a half a dozen or more bills that would change the way Maine does citizen initiatives, ranging from provisions that raise the bar on signature collection to those that raise the threshold for passage at the ballot, Some require more vetting of the proposed statute before it advances to voters. One would provide clean election-style public funding for ballot question campaigns. So let's talk about why these are controversial and why some of these reforms might or might not make sense. But let's sort of cast back a little bit, Mike, and put it to you first. Why did these initiative provisions get added to the Maine State Constitution in the first place? Right. Well, they were added to the Maine state constitution. We've had in the state of Maine um, direct democracy measures of the uh, citizen initiative and referenda for over 100 years. Uh, And they were initially added um, back in 1908 uh, after a number of years of debate over the issue as a result of frustration in the state at the time about the power of the timber industry and railroads. Uh, The state was going through a poor economic uh, period, and there was frustration that uh, timber interests and railroad interests held significant weight um, in in Augusta. And so there was some movement by folks to try to bypass those powerful interests by instituting the 
um, initiative and referenda process. And it took a little bit, a little bit, a couple of years, uh, but it was bipartisan and then eventually passed uh, at the ballot box in 1908. Um, I should add also that uh, Maine citizens have been voting uh, in direct democracy measures more or less since almost the start of the state. Back in the 1830s, uh, Mainers were voting on constitutional amendments, uh, and that's a, a general way in which states pass uh, amendments to their state constitutions is through the initiative process, or at least through the, the ballot process. Uh, and so that was happening prior to this, and then in, in, in 1908, these other pathways to the ballot were added. Josh, is that consistent with what happened in other states? Um, yeah, it, it certainly is. Um, you know, the direct democracy really kind of flourished in the United States during the progressive movement. There was really this response to what was seen as a overbearing uh, party system, sort of the, the, the strong arm of the big party machines. Um, it, it sort of rose up in a lot of cases in particular ways. One of the things that's interesting about Maine is is that Maine is is the you know is one of the only East Coast states to be an early adopter. Um, largely, direct democracy was adopted in new constitutions or in newer constitutions of sort of the Western uh, states, and so Maine was actually an early adopter of direct democracy and, and the first state uh, east of the Mississippi to to adopt uh, any of the provisions of, of direct democracy, but certainly the politics surrounding this are exactly what was happening uh, in other states. About the legislature being captured by, let me say, big money interests and not serving the general public good? or Well, and, and really it was a concern about partisan politics. You know, in a, in a lot of ways, the progressives, if you understand the progressive movement as it, it, sort of a, a, a historical piece, the progressives were interested in gaining power for the progressive movement and the things that progressives were interested in. And so the progressives weren't direct Democrats, per se, small d Democrats. So they weren't really necessarily interested in this idea of more democracy. They were interested in breaking up the party machines. And so if you look at sort of the the menu of reforms that they favored, they favored a lot of things which democratized the United States. And so they favored things like the direct election of senators, and they favored things like uh, of having uh, primary elections. But they also favored um, less democratic reforms. So um, having a more professionalized bureaucracy, and also some uh, city government reforms um, that that were not necessarily uh, devolve or giving more power or, or pro democracy reforms. Yeah. And so it was really something to to give the progressives sort of a leg up. And you have to understand political movements in their proper historical context, which is that political movements want to gain power and change policies in the way that they think is correct. And and so that's really the context of which, you know, direct democracy reforms were, were passed in the United States. And it's also part of the reason why we haven't seen many states adopt uh, direct democracy in many, many years. It's we kind of had a stopping point. 
I mean, we're going to do our show next month on the difference between a republic and a democracy, but it's interesting to hear you say that these reforms were not necessarily enacted for the purpose of more direct popular um, election or more direct popular enactment, and I see Mike nodding, so mm-hmm. I'll let him jump in here. No, I think that's I think that's right. It was it was a a, a reaction to um, to the to the sense that the political party machines were very very powerful, and this was a way to um, begin to uh, break that up and to to bypass those powerful interests. So has it worked that way? Are these pro- provisions a good institu- institutional check on the legislature, the parties, or do they wind up undermining representative democracy? I think sometimes our legislature thinks that they undermine the representative role of the legislature. What do you think, Mike? Well, I know that Josh has done a lot of research on this, and so I'll let him uh, weigh in on this in a second. But um, but I, I also think that from my look at the, the Maine's history uh, with this, uh, you know, after this was initiated in, in 1908 or passed, added to the Maine state constitution, it's not as if there was a, a spate of citizens' initiatives in the next intervening years. In fact, there was not a, a tremendous number of citizen initiatives uh, until – well, maybe the first one um, uh, was in 1911, and then we went until 1923, 1927 before we had another citizen initiative. So these were ways; these were institutional means that were instituted as a way to, as we discussed, bypass party power and perhaps change the direction of policy in the state. But then they weren't necessarily used in great numbers for a long period of time. That changed in the the 1960s and 1970s and has become, in the state of Maine anyway, as in other states, more aggressively used in recent years for um, social cultural issues and as well as issues on which certain interests feel like they're not getting a hearing from the party in power uh, in the state capitol. So um, so it is a way for people who feel as if they don't have a means to achieve their policy ends to try to bypass that. And that can be a good thing and can have lots of positive, uh, positive impacts. And I actually think Maine's history here suggests that Mainers and Maine voters are pretty discerning about what they're willing to support and what they're not willing to support. Um, and so my my take on things is that it's probably been a net positive for the state of Maine. Um, but um, but I know that others are researching this in terms of whether or not the output or whether or not the process itself is achieving the goals uh, that uh, many people might hope it to achieve. So, Josh, jump in here. Let me re, re- Put the question again: Are these provisions, you know, citizen initiative provisions in state constitutions here in Maine and elsewhere, are they working to provide an institutional check on legislatures, or do they undermine representative government? What do you think? Yeah, I, I mean, let me try to answer that in two ways. So, uh, the, the answer to that question is yes, and, and I know. <laughs> well, there were two parts of that question, right. but yes um they they do um they do uh, have uh, uh they do provide an institutional check and they do undermine representative government okay, i there mean you go. It, it, they, they do both of those things um and and so and and so they they can be extraordinarily frustrating right um they make the legislature's job harder and they make it harder for legislators to do their job. And so if a legislature is functioning well, then direct democracy and, and direct provisions are, are often going to stand in the way. Also, the quality of what you're going to get out of the citizen initiative process is going to be a function of 
what types of issues you see put in front of voters and their salience and what types of campaigns and, and, and surround these issues. And so, you know, when you see things that voters know a lot about and that a lot of voters have opinions on, then voters are going to be able to express their opinions on those issues. Now, you raise a whole other set of questions when you do that. One, is this an issue that we should be asking for voters' opinions on, right? Is this something that delves into the issue of fundamental civil rights? Is it going to create a whole set of constitutional issues? Is it just going to bring up a series of court challenges? Um, so are we are we going to get into that realm? And also, are we are we dealing with this in um, in the realm of an election where we may or may not get the same outcome if we did this ten times? And if we aren't, because voter turnout is uncertain, it's inconsistent, are we really measuring the popular will? Are we measuring the popular will? at a certain snapshot in time. And if we are or we aren't, that raises all kinds of questions about the legitimacy of the, of the decisions that we reach by these outcomes, right? Which is different than electing candidates through a legislature who go into a deliberative body and then make decisions with quite a bit of constraint, right? Those processes work very, very differently. Right between making a law and electing candidates who then have to go through an entire process about how a bill becomes a law, and so you know, you're you're they, they definitely make the legislature's job harder. Now, to the question about Maine, Maine is quite a bit different, and I, and I know we're going to get into this, but I, I I think you know part of what you're getting at is Maine has a pretty constrained system, and so it's interesting because. You, you know, say that relative, like California or something like that. Oh, I mean, rel- right, relative to California and Colorado and Oregon, Maine has an indirect system, right? They don't have a constitutional referendum system. So Maine is already actually quite constrained in the fact that they have to go through this legislative review process before the legislature has the ability to put competing measures against the measure that goes before the public. And so they have quite a bit of agenda-setting power that does not exist in other states, and 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 they don't and citizens don't have the constitutional provision that that exists in other states. And so, by comparison, the 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 initiative system in Maine is already quite weak. That's interesting. Um, we're going to take just a quick break here. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther, the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is citizen initiatives, the devils in the details. Our guests this morning are Joshua Dick, Associate Professor of Political Science and Co-Director of the Center for Public Opinion at the University of Massachusetts Lowell. And here in the studio with me, Michael Franz, Professor of Government and Legal Studies at Bowdoin College and Co-Director of the Wesleyan Media Project. We were talking about um, Maine's citizen initiative pro- process being a little bit more restrained than it is in other states and the competing measures. What was the la- when was the last time that Maine actually, the legislature, put a competing measure on the ballot? Yeah, uh, well, I know probably the <clears> – <throat> I could be wrong about this, but my, um, my uh, recollection is, based off of what I'm seeing in my notes here, is that the last time we saw that was around 2004 
when uh, there were competing measures about local or state funding for local school budgets. So that citizen initiative was in 2003 about the state of Maine covering 55% of school school education costs. The legislature put a competing measure on the ballot because the original measure did not have a funding mechanism. Um, The initiative, the citizens initiated process uh, uh, got the most votes, but it didn't win an outright majority of the votes cast, and so it went to ballot again in 2004. And to Josh's point in that regard, that uh, competing or that the result of that um, uh, process meant that the second vote was in a June primary in 2004 at the June primary election, given that the state requires it to be put on the, the next available possible ballot. So I'm ballot. just going to back up a little bit and yeah. um, recapitulate the law in Maine, which says that the question that gets signatures has to go on the ballot exactly as written. The Maine state legislature can pass it outright exactly. or not, right. and then they can put a competing measure up if they see something that they'd like to have better. Exactly. And so then the three things appear on the ballot, the original question as written, the competing measure, mm-hmm. and the no vote. Yes. And one of those three has to get a majority to prevail. Correct. And if one of them does not get a majority, then the two highest vote getting provisions go on the next immediate election. Is that right? Yes. Okay. And so, and this is what happened in 2003 and in 2004. And so to Josh's point, uh, in, in 2003, there were a, a, a lot of votes uh, uh, on these, on the original measure and on the competing measure. But then the subsequent vote went on the June primary ballot and there was a lot lower turnout as is typical in a, in a primary race. And so the, the resulting support for that 55% state funding measure um, received, you know, 90-something thousand yes votes, which was half of the number of yes votes that it received in the preceding election. And so this, and then what, what has happened in the state subsequent to that is that advocates for this particular measure have talked about the will of the people not being heard and that's technically true in that a majority voted to support the, the subsequent measure in 2004. Um, but the, the turnout in that election was significantly so small, lower. Right? And so uh, what becomes or what represents in this process the will of the people when ballot initiatives are being approved with varying degrees of, of turn and varying levels of turnout rates across elections? So I, I want to talk just a bit more about those competing measures because I s- observed something sort of going on there, which is and I'll ask you both to confirm this, that proponents of competing measures, I mean, proponents of ballot questions fear competing measures because of that majority provision, and they feel fear vote splitting. Right. And so they would really rather have their question go on the ballot without a competing measure. And it seems like sometimes then they would rather not have the bill get a lot of legislative attention or be worked very hard in the legislature. Is that a fair assessment of how this works, would you say, Josh? I mean, I certainly would say that. I I, I would say that that's uh, that's part of the reason that I called Maine's system uh, institutionally weak is that you don't have – this is what's called the indirect initiative process where – you know the 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 initiative has to face the legislature, and there's some legislative process where the legislature has an agenda-setting move before this faces the voters. So, like in a California, for instance, uh, uh, voters or an interest group can just write a measure 
qualified it for the ballot, and if it has enough signatures, it just goes, right? There's no intervening step here. Now, someone else could write, you do get poison pills or competing measures where someone is aware of a measure and they write a competing measure, but this specific process that you're talking about where you have the competing measure is put against it and then voters are given the option, right, of voting for this one, option A, option B, or no, and there's an exact process of how this is going to go where the legislature can specifically put something on there to try to get people not to vote for the initiative. I mean, absolutely, a, a group does not want the legislature to put a competing provision on there. They don't want that legislative attention. And in fact, the legislature has has a power here. You know, I, I, I think that if the legislature had wanted to prevent you know, a, a lot of measures that have passed in Maine in recent years, they probably could have by writing an, an effective, you know, competing measure. I mean, this is the greatest power they have to prevent a ballot measure from passing. You want to comment on that? Yeah. The, the, well, the, the, the other thing I'll add to that, too, is it can, it can perhaps sometimes work in, in slightly different ways depending on, on the issues as well. I mean, one of the issues that is on the agenda nowadays is about paid sick leave. And there is um, a group of citizens who are organizing to get a petition process in place to institute a citizen initiative on paid sick leave. This has forced the state, I mean, the state legislature now controlled by the Democrats, but it's forced their hand a bit to try to get in front of that so that they can control the um, control the bill or the contents of the bill in a way that would co-opt the sick leave initiative process from happening. And so in, in this particular case, it's almost as if the uh, citizen group pushing the sick leave uh, uh, bill has forced the state legislators ha- legislative hand into considering something more aggressively than maybe they perhaps would have wanted to um, in, in other in other years. And so uh, uh, in that way, the state legislature says, well, we if we can pass a bill that will do essentially what folks want, but do it in a way that we want it to be done, even if, you know, we have to kind of do that faster than we might want to, then um, maybe uh, then we, we can, can save ourselves some trouble. Later. We can, right. Because yeah. what will be in the, the possible bill as as uh, as uh, um, um, put forward by the petition uh, might not be specific enough or good enough or or might damage, you know, might have more, do more damage than good. And so uh, so in that way, the, this iterative back and forth can sometimes um, force the legislature into acting in certain ways. So what's the national and then the state experience in terms of the ballot questions that come forward? Are they mostly ones that the legislature has tried to get enacted and just could not put across the finish line? Or are they ones that are coming up out of whole cloth ahead of legislative action? Josh, what are you finding? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that it's a mixed bag, right? But I, I think that the ones that gain the most attention are often things that the legislature would never consider. Um, because a lot of the time what you're finding is that these are – they may be issues that have been out there that, but just that would never be taken up by legislative consideration. Like, for and, example, and I mean, we wouldn't. We we just had no discussion about legalization of marijuana in this country at the legislative level for for decades, and there was clear public support for it that has you know become quite apparent first in the sort of the first wave of of um, uh, 
medical marijuana uh, laws, and now we've seen it um, come out. But we also see this in a variety of other measures uh, that have to do with institutional reform, like term limits. We see this with the tax-cutting measures of the 70s and 80s. We see this with um, taxes that are like the, the billion millionaires and billionaires taxes that show up increases in the minimum wage. Uh, a lot of policies like this are are, are things that are not are, are are tabled at the state level and and kind of get pushed by some agenda. Um, and and we also saw this with same-sex marriage. I mean, same-sex marriage was something that uh, that in a lot of states got pushed by outside groups and even had some a, a lot of push from the national level. But the um, examples that you're citing, Josh, are ones that I know in Maine had been tried through the legislature a few times and failed. I know the marijuana legalization was tried legislatively. Same-sex mm-hmm. marriage was was tried legislatively. Mm-hmm. Um, clean elections was tried legislatively. So a lot of them were sort of in the original intent out of frustration well, I- with legislative inaction. Right, but is it legislative inaction or is it legislative? I mean, and this gets into an interesting question, right? Is it is it is it legislative inaction or is it just lack of legislative support? And and in, so legislatures are designed to institutionalize gridlock, and so legislatures move slowly. Legislatures, you know, that's the American legislative process. It does not. It, it does not make big sweep, they do not make big sweeping changes. And a lot of the time we're dealing with, and I, I'm not generalizing to Maine here, but I'm generalizing to the United States as a whole and just to our institutional structure. A lot of the time we deal with divided government. A lot of the time we're dealing with an inability to move policies forward. And so what happens in the ballot initiative process is we see a group say, well, I don't want to go through that process and I don't want to see some compromised version of my policy end up on the other side. And what attracts people to the initiative process is, well, I've got a one-shot chance to get an up or down vote on the pure version of my policy mm-hmm. that I believe in. And, and what that leads to is is whether or not these things, all of these things have been proposed at some point. It's a question of whether they would ever have been considered. Marijuana was never seriously considered in legislatures for decades in states across the, uh, across the country until they started passing the ballot initiative. And, and what happened in these places is, is that you started to see um, groups who are more to the left and more to the right able to pass their policies via the ballot initiative. And the people who are attracted to ballot initiatives are people who realize that the normal legislative process will shut them out. It's interesting because you're raising the question of what other strategic intent the sponsors of these questions might might have. I think, you know, in, in years past, social conservatives put abortion questions on the ballot for the purpose of turning out their constituency to affect electoral outcomes in candidate races. Um, I wonder sometimes whether organizations don't find organization building benefits to running a big, well-financed campaign. Um, And as you say, there are choices made in terms of whether to put it on the ballot in an off year or in uh, a midterm or a general election. Comment on the other strategic factors 
Mike, that might play into a sponsor's thinking about putting these forward, not only the ones that Josh is raising about being able to get a purer form, a more uncompromised right. form. Right. Well, there's also the sense of, of timing. So, um, you know, can you piggyback a bit on uh, what you perceive to be a more high-profile, high-turnout election where you expect the electorate to have a slightly different demographic composition than um, than you would in some years? Or can you try to take advantage of a lower turnout uh, election where you know the demographic turnout base or the composition will look a little different than in a presidential election year. So some of that will go into timing. Um, I don't see in, in, in Maine per se a lot of the initiative process leading um, or being part of a coordinated attempt to sort of help other candidates or a polit- political party, uh, in part because the people who are behind many of these initiatives are working very, very hard just to get them on the ballot, and they're not necessarily part of some coordinated sort of Democratic or Republican um, strategy, although that's been sort of the history that's been written about some of this in, in um, more nationally, like you mentioned, on, on conservative issues in, in, in recent presidential elections. But, um, but I think just the process of getting on the ballot is not an easy one and can sometimes therefore uh, uh, separate that from any sort of other um, uh, politicking that might be happening. Do you want to comment on the other strategic purposes that these ballot strategy questions can be used for, Josh, and then we'll take a little break before we turn to listener calls? Yeah. um, So I I think that the the strategic purposes here, I mean, if you you listen to what Carl Rove has openly said about how they used uh, same-sex marriage ballot questions in 2004, it was not just about a turnout effect. It was about what um, uh, Steve Nicholson has written a bunch about this, who's at the University of California, Merced, has called a priming effect. And so for what they were trying to do was when they get voters into the ballot box and those voters are deciding who to vote for, they wanted them to make sure that they were thinking about the issue of same-sex marriage. And so that when they were there in 2004 and thinking about their presidential vote, that issue was at the top of their mind. And so when they were thinking about that, that would make them more likely to vote for George W. Bush. And so that's a, that's an effect of it's not just about turning those voters out, but it's also about priming those voters about who they're going to vote for by giving them the issue to think about. And Democrats effectively have done that in other elections, particularly in the 2006 midterms um, with the minimum wage. Uh, they put minimum wage initiatives on the ballot in strategically in states where they needed to win Senate seats and and effectively were able to prime voters to think about the minimum wage when they were deciding, especially undecided voters, and who they're going to vote for. And, you know, you match the policy to the other candidates on the ballot. And so that's, I think, some of the other strategic thinking that goes on when they're putting these things uh, on the ballot. I want to ask Mike to comment on that as it relates to Maine, but I'm going to take just a little break and then we'll have listeners join the conversation as well. Um, you're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU this morning. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this morning are Joshua Dick, Associate Professor of Political Science and Co-Director of the Center for Public Opinion at the University of Massachusetts Lowell, and Michael Franz, Professor of Government and Legal Studies at Bowdoin College and co-director of the Wesleyan Media Project. 
Our topic today is citizen initiatives, the devil's in the details. If you have a question or comment, you can join our conversation now by calling toll-free 866-625-9378, or you can call 469-0500 if you're dialing locally. We have only one listener line open, so be patient if you get a busy signal. If you do get through, please take your answer off the line so that others can call in. Don't wait till the last minute. Get your call in early. Um, so we're talking about the strategic uses of the ballot questions for other purposes and just acting that law. Do you think that happens in Maine, Mike? Well, I mean, I think the, as as Josh was talking too, it was I was reminded too of of the um, the recent battles in the state over ranked choice voting. And so, although I think many of the social cultural issues um, are being driven in the state, you know, out of just an interest in those particular issues and not necessarily to drive people to the polls to vote for. Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama. Nonetheless, the the movement for ranked choice voting was um, in response to uh, the outcome of the 2010 gubernatorial election and the sense that uh, and the history of electing um, governors to this uh, in the state without a majority. And so some of that was strategic from a, say, Democratic slash liberal perspective in order to prevent um, uh, someone from winning without a clear majority under the under the sense that it would probably advantage uh, Democratic candidates. Um, and so there was some strategy, strate- if you will, uh, there. Uh, and I think that's probably been the most high-profile example of it in recent years. I mean, the ones that have been the most divisive and the ones that seem to me like they've generated the most backlash have been um, the bear-baiting one, Correct. which launched right. a whole bunch of reform proposals, and um, recently the universal background check bill which yes. also did. And those, along with ranked choice voting, seem to have been divisive along the lines of what people think of as the two mains. Yes. Um, so talk about that. Yeah, well, there's definitely po- – I mean, so as polarization has infected almost everything in our political system, it's also come to infect sort of the way people perceive the the, ball- or the issues and, and the, the purposes of certain ballot uh, questions. Uh, and so, you know, as I mentioned at the outset, I mean, the, the initial move in the state to create referenda and initiatives has a, a, a bipartisan history. But in recent years, many of the issues that have um, been put on the ballot have really been divisive across Democratic and Republican lines. And and in fact, there's been some some resentment, I think, from some Republicans about the use of the initiative and ballot process to get some of these issues onto the ballot as a way of um, uh, taking advantage of you know the process in order to pass certain liberal issues. Uh, I don't know if they're part of a concerted attempt to sort of affect the way uh, candidate elections turn out or to influence the, the turnout rate in particular ways that have spillover effects. In other words, if the purpose is to do those things. But I do think that the polarization that we see pretty much in everything um, has shown up in the way ballot initiatives in the state have been discussed and that the way they've been argued and debated and that the way the results have turned out. And th- those are the ones that have led to the most um, serious reform or curtailment proposals. Is that consistent with what you're seeing across the country, Josh, or is Maine having a particular experience here? No, no, Maine's not having a particular experience. <laughs> that's, that's what's going on everywhere. I mean, I, I, I've done a bit of research on this. This is there's a there's a big part of my of my um, recent book that that's all about this question of polarization and one of the arguments that um, my co 
Robert said last year and I make is that ballot initiatives have actually contributed to this increase in polarization. In fact, the, the, the idea that we vote on issues and, and we put these controversial issues up for a public vote gives people um, and gives parties another battleground through which to wage sort of the issues which have amplified um, um, polarization debates. And, and, it, and it's put it into the language of issues and it gives um, uh, campaigns a way to amplify messages and it gives them a way to, to tell voters and tell their voters how to discern between our party and the other guys, right? Us, the good guys, and the other party, the bad guys, right? Whichever party you are, you're the good guys. Right. The other guys, they're the bad guys. Right. And, and you know it through this particular ballot issue that we have up right now. And in fact, there are some great examples where you can see redistricting reforms that have been brought up in states that have a Democratic legislature. Uh, this was brought up in California, and the first time that they tried to do redistricting reform in California failed miserably. They actually had a couple failed attempts. And then you can contrast it with them trying to do redistricting reform in Ohio. And, and you know, in the instances when you look at the voting, it was Republicans in Ohio voting against it and Democrats in California voting against it in the initial, you know, iterations of them trying to pass these policies because, you know, you were essentially voting for an institutional reform that would take away power from Your the party. party that was actually governing. Right. It's it's interesting. And um, is it, so I, I'm thinking, like, when these go right, how do they go right? And when they go wrong... Like, how do they go wrong? And I'm also thinking about the money. Um, so some of the complaints that we hear in Maine about um, when people feel put upon by the outcome of the passage of one of these, they think outside money came in and sort of stole the election from us. Is that really a factor? Who wants to jump It, it always is. I, I mean, the, the thing is, is, is that electoral campaigns are funded by money. Um, all campaigns are funded by money, and, and money is the source through which you run campaign ads, and those ads are the source of information. Now, people hate campaign ads, and so and Mike can talk about this, I think, probably better than I can uh, uh, about campaign ads, but, but this, is, this is a source of consternation. We, we did polling on, we've done a, a lot of polling on this. I did some polling on the Public Policy Institute of California a number of years ago, and and people would say that they love direct democracy. And then you could ask them follow-up questions and say, you know, well, what don't, you know, if you ask questions, well, do you think there's too much money in the process? 70% say yes. You know, do you think you're well qualified to vote on these initiatives? Like 70% say yes. No, I'm not well qualified. <laughs> and so, you know, the, the, there's all of these pieces of this which kind of fall apart on inspection. And a big part of it is, is that people are really worried about there's this quote-unquote outside money. But everybody thinks outside money is like that other side. When they win, it's outside money that funded their victory. Go ahead. Um, I see Mike shaking, nodding. Yeah. So. No, and, and it's, it's a particular issue in, in – um, or it's an issue in lots of places. But in, in Maine, I mean, we have seen a huge number of ads about these ballot questions over the years. And, and uh, in 2018, I mean, the second district in, in Maine – 
uh, the, the the congressional race. I mean, it dwarfed everything that was was happening, but uh, it was one of the most advertised congressional races in the country. And so that skews the numbers a little bit if you look at recent years. But ballot questions in Maine have seen more ads. There were more ads on TV in, in, uh, for ballot questions in Maine than there have been for the presidency or for U.S. Senate races, uh, more than first district congressional races. It's pretty close to what we've seen in gubernatorial races. And because the, there's no one endorsing those messages. There's no candidate who sort of stands up and 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 appears in those ads. They're funded by groups with great sounding names and and coalitions of citizens. It becomes an easy target to make the case that they're front organizations for big money, for outside money, um, for people from away, and so forth. And so it becomes um, a, a big target uh, for um, for opponents of particular sides. I have a follow up question on the money, but I want to take a quick reminder about oh you have a caller um just take the break and then we'll put david on from brooklyn um this is the democracy forum on werufm we're talking about citizens initiatives the devils in the details our guests this morning are joshua dick associate professor of political science at the university of massachusetts lowell and michael franz professor of government and legal studies at bowden the call-in number is 866-625-9378, and we do have a caller on the line. Go ahead, David. You're on. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for the show. Thanks for the chance to call in. Uh, talking about devils and uh, money and politics uh, and advertising, uh, it's all, to me, uh, part of the same uh, ball of wax. Uh, you, you know, when you really think about it, from you try to get some kind of a, a pure, like a absolute pure uh, view of what, you know, what it might be. You know, the whole notion of advertising for uh, for dem- democratic uh, goals or democratic notions is fundamentally flawed. Uh, it's not about advertising your ideas. It's about advocating your ideas. And it's about, you know, the, the proper venue to me for political campaign is in the newspapers uh, where you, you get coverage by, you know, uh, giving uh, conferences, making statements. Uh, you know, the, the election should be conducted not on the basis of who has money to for me, I'm thinking of putting a bumper sticker on my car the next time that says, I'm voting for whoever pays the less, the <laughs> least on their election. You know, and I think it's a, it's a, it would be a valid campaign strategy. Thanks for uh, that comment, David. Let's, um, I, I want to... get the money out of it totally, and we've got to get advertising out of it totally. Let, it's not about advertising. Yeah, I'd like Mike to comment on, on that, and I want to sort of add on to what David said and sort of dump double down on it because it looks to me like in Maine the yes side always has the money and the no side hardly ever has any money so what do you make of that that well on that statement I'd have to go back and, and look um, but uh, I take your word for it but I, I've I've often been I've, I've long been a you know I've not been a, a booster of political advertising as a sort of way to sort of properly run our democratic process. But one of the ways that I've sort of characterized it, and my, my colleagues and I have characterized it, is that uh, because the, he, he's, the caller's absolutely right, Josh is absolutely right, people say they hate these things, they do hate these things, they don't like to see them, they're sick of them. Um, uh, we should be getting most of our information uh, long form from uh, the news media and from uh, forums where candidates can make their policy positions clear. But there's a whole other show that we could do about the history of, of, of why that's not 
going has not taken place historically it probably won't happen in the future but one of the things that i think we can understand political advertisements to be um amenable or akin to and and this is how we've characterized them is as multivitamins so if you think of it as a if we all take a multivitamin uh we think of it as providing us with certain things that we don't always get we should be eating fruits and vegetables we don't eat fruits and vegetables every day as, as many as we should so we sometimes take a multivitamin to supplement our diet We'd never survive on multivitamins alone. Nobody could do that. Nobody would. Nobody should. Nobody should try. Um, but ultimately, if you take a multivitamin, it's not going to kill you, you know, when you take one every single day. And so TV ads in many ways are like that. They're multivitamins. They provide us a sort of source of information for an, an informational diet that's somewhat deficient. Um, but they are not ways that you should survive on politics or on um, uh, ballot box decisions alone. And, and so the research tends to suggest that um, political ads do not turn people off to politics. They don't turn, make turnout go down. Uh, and they do provide, to some extent, information that is useful. It's not the best information, but it is information. Thank you. We have another caller, Suzanne, from Deer Isle. Go ahead. You're on the air. Yes, thank you for taking my call. Um, in Maine, the Secretary of State submits an initiative to the legislature. Then it has to be referred to a committee. But since 2012, only one, <clears throat> one out of 11 initiatives has been referred to committee. So there's no public hearing, and there actually is not a chance for a competing measure. And I wondered if that same kind of refusal by the legislature uh, to actually go uh, jumpstart the process occurs in other states or not. What do you say, Josh? I mean, I think in Maine they do get referred to committees, but I think the um, proponents work pretty hard to make sure they don't get a public hearing. I think she's right about that in Maine. So, so there are there are only a handful of states that actually use the similar process, the indirect initiative. There, there are a bunch of states that have both the direct and the indirect initiative, and the states that have both, no one uses the indirect because you know, why would they? Josh, just slow industry. down for a second and explain to people the difference between a direct and an indirect initiative. Sure, yeah. In, in a direct initiative, all, what you do is you, you, collect, you write a law and you collect the signatures and you submit it to the Secretary of State and it qualifies for the ballot. And so, there is no legislative involvement. So that's California, Where, for example? That in California. California has that. Oregon has that, Colorado has okay. that, a lot of states, 18 states, I believe, have ju have the direct initiative. And then indirect and, is where it has to go through the through a legislative process. Right. Okay. So, so Massachusetts is similar to Maine in, in this sense, right, that, that they only have the indirect um, uh, process. I'm, I'm not familiar enough, you know, I don't know about whether or not even Massachusetts requires a public hearing. So it may just be this this question may be sort of a specific to Maine politics kind of question, and that gets into sort of these, these individual differences between how the states even operate within their in each individual process. Each individual process is just a little bit different. They have a little bit different signature requirements, a little bit different reporting requirements, with with each of their um, with each of the processes and, and how they work, but it, it it does get at this you know issue again that you know in a lot of other states it's actually considerably easier. But if again if Maine is not going through that hearing process and they're not putting out a competing measure, 
they're actually um, sort of punting on their ability to constrain initiatives, and particularly if there's a movement within the legislature saying that they want to curtail initiative usage, it's, they already have that power, right? And and so it, it is it is interesting um, that they that they'd rather not put the competing initiative, and that they'd rather push forward legislation which just further curtails the the initiative process, either by raising signature requirements or doing what Florida did, which is increase the uh, the the uh, threshold. So in Florida, you have they only have constitutional initiatives, but they have to pass by 60 percent. I think and I'm thinking about Suzanne's question a little bit more. And I'm actually thinking maybe they don't get referred to committee because they're um, I, I think the proponents don't want to have a public hearing. It's not that they don't want to put up a competing measure. It's that they don't even want right. to have a public hearing. Um, that would make sense. We've got an. Yes. N- uh, do you want to answer that very no, quickly? No, We've got no, another no, call. Please. Okay. That's fine. Brian, go ahead. You're on the air. Where, where are you from, Brian? Thank you. I'm near the Farmington area. Yeah, go ahead. I'm calling from New Vineyard, Maine. Yep. I'm, I'm, live, I'm live streaming you because you're so far away. I'm a minister and social worker and peace activist. My my comment is, is that um, thank you for the show and thank you for the guest on it um i'm just afraid that it's a little bit um uh ivory tower uh oriented kind of a conversation no offense uh gentlemen at all but i think that we're leaving out a huge component in this discussion you might have you might have broached it a little bit but it's money and politics and to i, I believe that we would not have as many progressive legislation pieces and that now are law in Maine without citizens' initiatives. And just to, just to end by being as clear as possible, because it's so easy not to be clear on the radio and on the phone, I'm talking about just like on Capitol Hill in D.C., I'm talking about cash bribes going to legislatures, I believe, and from various corporations, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a huge component I think we're leaving out of this conversation. And that is another reason why citizens' initiatives are hugely important in Maine and other places. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Brian. We're um, starting to get down to the last few minutes, so I want to give Josh first a a chance to answer that comment from Brian. Go ahead. Brian, I love this question, and I love this comment. Um, I I recently had another conversation like this recently, and and the thing is is that if you take a historical outlook at this, 10 years ago, people would have made this exact same comment to me, but they would have said... I, I would have been talking to a conservative group, and they would have said this. They would have said, citizens' initiatives are hugely important to conservative causes. And what's happened is is that right now we are in a liberal or progressive moment for the citizens' initiative. What's happened is, is, is that um, legislatures have been largely controlled by uh, Republicans, uh, throughout the United States, and we've seen a movement or a push within these legislatures to push progressive policies. But if you look in the 70s and 80s, largely 
the policies that were being passed at the ballot box via the ballot initiative were largely conservative policies. And so I would be hesitant to say that the ballot initiative is either a liberal or conservative mechanism. It's simply a mechanism that kind of pushes government from the outside, depending on who has been out of control for sort of a period. Even if you look to 2009, that was when the citizens' veto in Maine passed uh, about same-sex marriage. And then three years later, the citizens in Maine overturned it. But if you looked at this 10 years ago, you would say, wow, we're in sort of a conservative moment in Maine. And, and um, 10 years later, it looks very different. And, Mike, that was when the Tabor bills, I mean, that wasn't that long ago, which were conservative tax reform bills that were on initiatives in Maine. That's right. Yeah. So um, taxpayer bill of rights. And, um, <clears throat> and and so, yeah, this can this can definitely shift. And I think it's absolutely the case that we're in that sort of moment where it seems as if uh, progressive uh, causes are, are are mobilizing people to get try to get things on the ballot. You see a physician-assisted suicide sort of movement to get something on the ballot. Didn't make it for 2019, but could end up on the 2020 ballot. Um, and so, uh, so you know, you do see uh, you do see these things shift and, and move around uh, on the issue of of um, the process itself as a as a as a sort of safeguard against sort of bribery in the legislative. Um, process. I mean, it's a, it's a hugely important thing to to try to create mechanisms through which to to make the system um, uh, functional and to make it sort of uh, trustworthy. Uh, I've always been, uh, and 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 the, the campaign finance laws have been around for, and, and lobbying and lobbying restrictions have been have been around in varying forms for a long time to to try to. Uh, uh, deal with this, and and I, I'm actually not so concerned. I mean, I'm not concerned actually at all in the state of Maine with with sort of um, issues of of bribes and 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 pay pay to play sort of um, uh, transactions amongst amongst legislators. But many people feel we would never have had a clean elections law if we hadn't had an initiative. Oh, option. sure. I mean, sir, you know the 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 the, the, the goal of sort of who has power and, and where the power lies with the sort of state legislature or fearing losing control of the agenda with an initiative process um, or a term limit process or a public funding process can, can it, it will create tensions with with elected officials um, but uh, the, the the things that have been instituted in the state of Maine with clean elections and with term limits creates a sort of a, a cleansing effect in the state legislature that I think um, uh, should make us feel uh, somewhat comfortable that there isn't this sort of uh, um, uh, concern. We're, we had a, a really long list of questions for our conversation today, and we're coming down to the last few minutes without having asked half of them. Um, but Josh, I want to give you just a, a minute or so to bring up any big points that we have not been able to cover so far in the conversation. I, I actually just want to pick up on this last point, uh, because I, I think that uh, the, the last caller and, and Mike's discussion here raises a, a really interesting thing. Um, one of the interesting things that you might think would happen in ballot initiative states as we pass institutional reform laws over time is that it will create these cleaner, fairer outcomes. And objectively, that might happen, although there's a lot of questions within the state politics literature about whether or not term limits have been a good thing. Um, there's a lot of evidence, for instance, that term limits um, you know, devolved power to unelected people like staff members and to bureaucrats and creates less specific laws. One of the things that I've found in my own research uh, is that 
um, what happens with citizens when they interact with the ballot initiative process over time is that it makes them less trusting of government. Mm -hmm. It exposes them to this process where they're constantly reminded that government isn't doing X and government isn't doing Y, and we should have an we should have an election about this. And whether or not these policies are passing and whether or not we're doing anything about it or getting more responsive outcomes, what we do get is we erode the trust between citizens and legislatures. And I'm deeply concerned as a small D Democrat, someone who's concerned about the long-term health of democracy, about that erosion of trust and the fact that ballot initiatives seem to lead to that outcome. You want to have a parting comment here, Mike? I hear our theme music coming up, so we yeah. have just a minute more. Well, the only thing I'll add in terms of to the discussion in, in general is that um, you know our discussion is focused on the citizen initiative process uh, and to some extent on the people's veto process, but it should be mentioned also that the state of Maine has other ways that things appear on the ballot, constitutional amendments referred out by the state legislature. We vote on bond measures, as people in the state of Maine are probably well familiar with. And, uh, and so, you know, although the process itself is not... Um, uh, a direct one and it, the, the process has the role of the state legislature is heavily involved it is at the same time a very diverse and interesting process in the state of Maine and I think that that's something that we should all uh, 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 be proud of. Thank you. We're completely out of time. So um, thank you to our guests this morning, Joshua Dick, Associate Professor of Political Science and Co-Director of the Center for Public Opinion at the University of Massachusetts Lowell and Michael Franz, Professor of Government and Legal Studies at Bowdoin College and co-director of the Wesleyan Media Project. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Thanks to Amy Brown, our engineer at WERU. Thank you to our listeners. Our website is lwvme.org for more information about this topic or to learn about other shows in this series. We'll see you here next month when our topic will be about whether we live in a republic or a democracy. Uh, That'll be on May 17th, and we'll see you here then. Thanks a lot. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental,